Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Hi, my name is Nora Shaw. I was listening to my dad interview these people, and you might hear me a little bit in the background. Thank you, Nora. Yes, Nora was listening in on this interview and uh, was doing her best to be very quiet. But if you listen closely, you might you might just hear her. I'm really excited to announce that the Out the Gate podcast has a new sponsor. Starting now and into the first half of 2022, Shearwater Sailing will be sponsoring the show. Shearwater Sailing offers local and offshore charters out of Monterey Bay aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. If you listened to last week's episode, episode 85 of the show, you heard Kevin Wasbauer, who's the captain and owner of Shearwater Sailing. And when I spoke to Kevin, I also had the opportunity to spend the day sailing aboard Atalanta. Having been newly refit, she's really a beautiful, very comfortable, and safe vessel. Kevin has done an amazing job of refitting her. In fact, I saw Kevin, uh, met him for the first time when he was doing the refit and got to see the boat in progress. He's, he's done it up with two private cabins that both have ensuite heads with hot water showers. The wood down below is just exquisite. She was initially built in New Zealand, and you really have to see this beautiful racing boat. She, she's a, a speed demon, but also very comfortable. So a wonderful combination of features. And when I went sailing with them, I was super impressed with the expertise shown by the captain and crew, and can safely say that sailors, novice to very experienced, will learn from time aboard. Sailing on Monterey Bay is a treat with spectacular views and plenty of wildlife to see from birds to whales to dolphins and more and Shearwater sailing is very flexible and can provide custom itineraries anything from a two-hour cruise to an overnight trip or longer just reach out directly by visiting shearwatersailing.net or you can find them on instagram and facebook at Shearwater sailing or go old school and give them a call at 650-743-1389 or just email Kevin at info at shearwatersailing.net. You will not be disappointed. You will have a fantastic time on the water in this beautiful boat with Shearwater Sailing. Well, this week, we're taking a trip around the Americas. I met Ben Pedersen Wedlock and Anna Behrens through an ocean cruising club event in Sausalito a few years back. Not long before, they had returned from an epic adventure sailing their 28-foot ferro-cement Atkins-designed boat south from San Francisco, down around South America, and back up to New England. Oh, and to keep it interesting, and more fun, as they describe it, they had no engine on the boat. Their only means of propulsion other than sailing was a 14-foot sculling oar, or of course warping and kedging the boat. Ben grew up on boats and has a lot of experience cruising. Anna, on the other hand, was new to it all, having met Ben only a year or so before they shoved off. Well, we'll talk about their 50-plus day passages, transiting the Beagle Channel, getting arrested in the Falklands, and nearly running out of power and food in the dead of winter towards the bottom of the planet. So let's get right to it. My name is Anna Behrens. Ben and I met mm, 11 years ago, I think now. And shortly after I encountered him, he said, I have a boat, let's go sailing. (laughs) Or rather, I'm going sailing, are you coming? Um, So that was sort of the genesis of our sailing life together. I grew up in Maine, but oddly enough, was not involved in the boat or sailing community there. Where in Maine? Uh, near Belfast, Penobscot Bay, so mid-coast, um, but inland a little bit. So more more in the cow fields than in proper boat land. 
um, but have lived out on the West Coast since 2006. So we'll we'll get to that first sailing experience with Ben, but um, Ben, why don't you introduce yourself quickly? I'm Ben Wedlock. Uh, I grew up on boats mostly. My parents ran a big school ship when I was a little kid, so the first five years of my life were on a big uh, 135-foot schooner. Um, and then I went off cruising for the first time right out of high school. Did my first trip down to Central America. Wow, on what? That was a 26-foot wooden uh, Edward Monk-designed little sailboat. And you grew up sailing on boats, but was there a home base? Was there area? Uh, yeah, so I grew up, I was only on the boat till I was about five, and then grew up just north of Boston in Essex. Okay. Did you meet here in the Bay Area? Yeah, so I had a, a friend, um, and her partner at the time was good friends with Ben. And so this guy, Andreas, was going to buy a boat, and the boat was up here in Tiburon. Uh, he lived down in Carmel, Monterey area, and Ben did at the same time. And Ben's dad is a boat surveyor. Ben has been a boat surveyor, though at that time he was not. Um, but Andreas knew that Ben was a, a knowledgeable boat person, so somebody that you wanted to bring with you when spending $10,000 on a boat on Craigslist. Um, so I got a call from my friend Jen saying, hey, we're coming up to the bay. My boyfriend's going to buy a boat. Let's go sailing. So I put a windbreaker in a bag and went out for the day. They ended up buying the boat, and uh, we were just planning to go for a day sail, but ended up anchoring out for what ended up being a very cold night. (laughs) (laughs) That you were not prepared for. Unprepared. Sail covers were inadequate. (laughs) Had you been on boats before? Had you been sailing at all? I mean, I'd been on sailboats and ferries and whatnot. You know, growing up in Maine was certainly an an on-the-water kind of life, but not in the yachty type way. So I had never personally done anything on the boat. That day sailing on the bay was, I believe, my first time actually like handling any sails or, you know, operating any winches or steering or doing anything actually sailing a boat. Do you remember your impressions of that day of sailing other than being cold? It was super fun. I mean, it was a gorgeous day. That I remember. I don't really remember much about the actual sailing because at that point, I didn't have anything to compare it to. Sure. But no, I thought it was great fun. I mean, I've always been sort of an outdoorsy person. Camping and hiking and that kind of thing were always part of my nature. So I definitely was anxious to enjoy it in a sense. Like I, I thought that that was something that would fit with my personality and was pretty interested in in getting to learn that and ben how long until you said hey i'm going sailing do you want to come along Uh, i think that was maybe a year after no not even a year after we met probably like eight ten months and you guys were dating already yeah 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 but yeah not very long in and you had a boat that you were Getting ready to head off on? Yeah, so I had uh, Inga, which was a little 28-foot Atkins-designed cement boat that I'd been living on, off and on, for a few years. Here in the area? In Centerfell, mostly. Okay. And was that was 2010, right when the whole economy had tanked out, and I was working for a all um, biofuels startup. Mm. So, like, all our venture capital funding was gone. So it was like, well, there's no more work. May as well go take off cruising for a few years. And what was your reaction? I had no idea what to do at first. It seemed like... The way I remember coming around to it was I definitely didn't want to rush into a decision. I was still a bit unclear as to what this relationship actually was or could be. And obviously that's a very large decision to make both personally and, you know, otherwise. So, but the way I came around to it was that I knew that I would regret it if I said no. And so it seemed like worth worth the risk. Uh, my rationale was was basically like, I'm going to say yes, but I'm <clears throat> going to maintain my control of the situation. And the, the logic I had for that was that I would always have enough money in my bank account for a plane ticket home from anywhere. You had an exit plan. 
In in theory, though, of course, it doesn't work so well if you're not actually on land. Right. There are only certain places you can exit from. <laughs> um, and I I went to my job at the time and asked for a leave of absence. Yeah. I was I was hoping to not burn all of my bridges in the event that I you know if it, if it was not a long lived adventure, I wanted some security on the back end. They ultimately said no. But they also said, if you show back up and we have work, we will rehire you. You know, we value your contribution and think you're a good employee. And, you know, if, if we have the capacity, we will pay you. Yeah. To come what back. were you doing at the time? Uh, environmental consulting. Same okay. thing that I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, this was for a small firm in Oakland. So that was an, a little bit of a comfort in that sense that I knew that if everything fell apart and went sideways and I could get back here that I would have some money coming in if needed. But I love that way of thinking about it. Will I regret this if I don't do it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't, you don't know enough to make the decision on actual facts. Right. I didn't know enough about Ben. I didn't know enough about sailing, but I knew that it was a potential piece of life that I would enjoy. And I would regret not knowing that. The sort of like cost-benefit analysis worked out in his favor, ultimately. <laughs> ben, did you expect her to say yes? I uh, wasn't really sure. Yeah. Could have gone yeah. either way, probably. Might as well ask. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the trip. How long after that did you take off? Were you ready to go? That would have been probably springtime. Um, and we left in, I remember that was November 21st, I think, we left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like late November we left, so pretty quick. And headed where? Uh, first went out the gate, down the California coast and Central America. We stopped in Half Moon Bay. We did a day sail and anchored in Half Moon Bay and then actually mm. got picked up by Ben's dad and went to a friend's house for like Thanksgiving dinner mm. in Monterey and then came back to the boat and then kept going. Also, we left the boat at anchor the first night out, got a call from the harbor master while at Thanksgiving dinner saying, hey, your boat's on the beach. Oh, no. And then we got back to the boat after Thanksgiving dinner in Monterey. Ben rose out in the dinghy without oar locks, rose around, and Steve, his father, and I had walked to the boat. Never a good sign when you can walk to the boat but, after you I left I mean, it was anchor. a very early introduction to, like, kedging off a boat, like, yeah. rowing out an anchor, setting the anchor, spending a couple of hours sleeping on a 45-degree sloped bunk. So you didn't know from sailing. You didn't know this guy really. Did you – did that make you concerned? Did you just trust that he knew what he was doing? Yes. I, I, I could tell – that he was a very competent person, that he knew everything about boats inside and out, and that the boat that we were sailing on was small and simple enough that it was very easily single-handed. Yeah. So at the beginning, my plan was I'm just extra hands and galley wench, and I'll learn as we go. And that played out. On the other side of the coin, Ben, when you'd gone cruising before, were you responsible for others? Uh, so the first trip I did right after high school, I took off. I initially left single-handed, and then actually my high school girlfriend ended up coming with me for about most of the trip, six months or so. Then she had never really done much sailing before either, and we were 18, so, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't, like, totally novel. So you guys headed down down the coast. Yeah, so we went – I mean, we really took our time, like, Channel Islands. We spent – Christmas, New Year's, sort of, in the Channel Islands, mm-hmm. which was actually really cool that time of year because all of two harbors, the main harbor there, there's, you know, where 600 moorings or something, there was three people there. Wow. Um, so we had the whole cool. place to ourselves. We planned to go in for a night, and then we went in to pay for a mooring, and they were like, oh, it's, you know, $20 a night or $50 a week if you want to stay. And we were like, oh, okay, we'll stay for a week or two. Yeah. Um, and it was lovely. The whole island was empty, and we got a tour of the island from the harbor master and kind of spent christmas cool. new year's there and then down to sort of the usual run baja um turtle bay cabo briefly even though it's awful mazatlan sort of that usual usual run and one of the things you didn't mention 
is that you're doing this all without an engine. Yeah, boat's engineless. Which is unusual for most people cruising these days. And you know, people know Lynn and Larry Party and people there are there are people out there cruising without engines. But why that choice and how did it change what you were doing? I mean, so that decision had been made before Anna was involved at all because I had torn the motor out and sold it pretty early on when I bought that boat. Um, I had been thinking about it since the first time I had gone cruising. That would be a pretty interesting way to go. So it had kind of been on my, my list of things. And it definitely makes it, yeah, it makes it more interesting, simplifies things a lot. I mean, the closest analogy I've come up with when I try to explain it to people is it's... Um, for climbers will understand this is the difference between like climbing on top rope and lead climbing. Um, you're doing the same moves, you're doing the same things, but there's a little bit higher level of commitment. You have to think a few more steps ahead. I would think. Yeah. It's, you don't have an easy out if you blow it. And mostly it's also just fun. I mean, it forces you to sail the boat in tight spots, which is the interesting part. Um, sailing across an ocean, there's not really anything to it. Um, sure. You can drift most of them, if you have the time. Um, it's the last, you know, mile that's normally the interesting part of the sailing. Yeah. And you've got plenty of time at sea to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're often moving incredibly slowly. Was this even something that you thought about, were aware of? I can't say that I have a strong recollection of it being a particularly important piece of the puzzle which looking back on it is a little bit um, interesting. I think at the time it was a, another piece in the pro column just because it seemed interesting yeah. and challenging and out of the ordinary. And those are all things that if I'm going to do a crazy thing, like leave my job and go off with this person I don't know. It might as well be for a good and interesting reason. <laughs> I mean, the way Ben presented it to me was never, this is a new and crazy, weird thing that I'm doing. It was all very logical. It was, I bought this boat cheaply on Craigslist and between the engine and the folding bikes that were on the boat when I bought it, he came out basically. Folding bikes are more important. There's more space. Yeah. There's nothing to break. Lots of cruising folks are stuck in various places waiting for parts. It's not noisy. It's not smelly. You don't have to maintain it. Like all of all of the things, all of the reasons that he brought to the table for me were very logical and easy to understand. So I don't think that I considered it quite in the, like I feel like other people from the outside think of it as a much larger and more momentous piece of the puzzle than it ever felt to yeah. me yeah. like it wasn't a it wasn't a purist thing it wasn't a philosophical thing it was it was more logical and a skill test like are we are we up to it so let's talk more about the journey how long into it did you realize Anna, that you were okay i'm in this for the long longer haul I'm not going to uh, exercise this escape route that I have. I think this about the six-month mark yeah. was kind of a deciding point. So we had left around late November 2010. And by spring, like May-ish that year, we were down through Mexico. And I had a wedding to go to around Memorial Day in the Bay. And the plan at that point was to get the boat to Panama City. I naively bought a plane ticket from Panama City for a date in the future that I thought date. was definitely far enough in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we, we proceeded to then have a very, very, very slow passage. You hadn't learned the lesson. You can pick the place or you can pick the time or you can't pick both. You cannot pick both. And so we had a miserable, becalmed, very hot passage um, ended up making it. For reference, it was 21 days for 800 miles. Oh, oh, sweltering, just rolling. It, it was rugged. We spent three days drifting in and out of the mouth of this bay on the tide before we were finally able to actually make it in 
and drop the anchor. Now, did you ever curse him and say, why did you rip that damn engine out? No, actually, it was at, at that point, you're so far past that decision that you yeah. just deal. You just deal. It like It's no longer a question. There's nobody to blame. You just have to deal. So you missed your flight. No. I got off the boat in Costa Rica, got on a bus, and bussed myself t- from Costa Rica to Panama City, got on a plane. Meanwhile, we actually had a friend from San Francisco that was living in Panama City for six months or so. We convinced him to get on a bus, come the other way, and he sailed with Ben for the last little leg from awesome. Costa Rica awesome. to Panama City. So I went home to the wedding. Um, ben and Christian got the boat on a mooring in Panama City and came back to the bay for the summer. And at, at that point, it was, you know, we were back in the bay, back working, back with friends. But at that point, I had definitely decided that this was, there was going to be a continuation. So you were filling up the cruising kitty a little bit. Was that the idea? Yeah, I came back. Uh, some of it was seasonal. There was, I forget what the season gap was, but depending on what we were planning to do, we had a few months to kill too. Came back, mm-hmm. worked for a bit. I feel like there may have been some other reason too, but yeah, basically came back, made some money, worked for a few months, only four months, I think, four or five months. And then we're back at it. And then back down to together. Panama. Yeah. That must have felt good. That must have felt like a different stage. So the plan when we left the Bay Area to go back to Panama City, we were on the mindset of going through the canal. Mm-hmm. We got back to the boat. Without an engine, it's actually kind of difficult to go through the canal because you're to make sure that you're not messing up everybody else that's transiting. You're supposed to have a minimum speed requirement. And with no engine, we can't guarantee that. Even with an outboard on the back of this boat, making five to six knots. I mean, the boat barely ever went <laughs> more than five knots. <laughs> so we, we, we came back and didn't quite have a game plan. Okay. We're like, okay, so buying an outboard and sticking that on the back, that's maybe not going to work. And getting through the canal is expensive. You've got to get, you know, like people on board as line handlers and the actual fees for going through. So the next option was, okay, we'll truck it. It's not that far. Mm-hmm. The boat's little. We must be able to like find a truck and a trailer somehow. So we actually like went on a bus mission over to the other side of the canal and tried to sort some things out and tried to figure out, you know, maybe we need to build a boat trailer. Maybe we need to find a truck driver. And then we got drunk and decided to go to Chile instead. (laughs) So just push on down south. Uh, Yeah. So we decided there have been... I mean, I own the guidebook already, so there have been some thought of Chile. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I decided just to go that way instead. Um, so we provisioned up, did a bit of work on the boat. When you say Chile, was the horn in your mind? Yeah, I mean, the once you're down there, you kind of keep going. So yeah. yeah, like we yeah. knew we'd be coming up through the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, but the channel is not quite Cape Horn, um, Beagle Channel and stuff. Okay. Um, so yeah, we kind of got sorted out in Panama city, which is a pretty good place to provision and get boat parts. It's central America is probably the best place to do a boat up. Um, went out to the Las Perlas, which are a couple islands just right off Panama city there on the West coast, uh, careened the boat on the beach, do the bottom paint did, you know, flopped it one day, one way, one day next tide we did the other side of the bottom paint, Love it. um, which is way better than a boat yard. I mean, you're on like a beautiful tropical beach doing bottom paint nobody's bothering you and yeah it's just it's super lovely and the boat's laid over too so you're not working overhead you're you're working on a Ah. vertical surface instead of an overhead surface yeah um and then we went from there we went nonstop to valdivia chile 52 days i think offshore basically the currents come up the peruvian coast peru is kind of californian reverse so it's very hard to go south on the coast okay Engineless and the and Peru's difficult cruising. There's not a lot of harbors. At least back then, there was like a whole bunch of rules that made it just. It was not an easy place to go on a boat. So we just went offshore. You basically leave Panama, go on port tack, and sail around the South Pacific High. Mm. Um, Did you think about hitting the Galapagos, or was that? 
So Galapagos at that point was very difficult and limited on your own boat. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. There was a sweet spot a few years before that when some friends of mine were there where you could just go everywhere on your own boat and do all kinds of cool stuff. What, by the time we would have been there, it was basically you could go into the main harbor, leave your boat, and take tours. So yeah. it didn't really seem worth it. Yeah. And it was expensive. And it was like, well, we'll just fly there if we want to go to the Galapagos someday. So we sailed past them, didn't see them. And then out offshore, because you're going around the Pacific High. And we went direct to Chile. If I was doing it again, I'd go to the Gambiers, because we beat up wind for 30 days, mm. close-hauled, which was awful. Um, we were pretty close to Easter Island. We didn't stop there. It was another few hundred miles out of the way. There's and not there's a no lot harbor. of place to stop. Yeah, there's it's... no harbor there, so it would have been really tough double-handed to stop at there's Easter Island. There's a tiny Island. harbor there. But I don't yeah, think I looked into it. We couldn't get our boat in there, probably. Oh, okay. It's too shallow. Um, maybe we could have, but probably not. Um, so it's a really hard place to stop double-handed because you always need someone on the boat. You might have to up anchor to sail away at any point. Yeah. So we... I was there once, and I remember watching a boat anchored off the west side of the island, just rolling back and forth and thinking, that looks miserable. <laughs> yeah. So it, it just didn't quite seem worth it. So we just basically did this big loop out into the South Pacific around the high. Um, you basically just stay close hauled until you hit about latitude 35 or 40 and pick up the westerlies, at which point you can sail into Valdivia, which is right about latitude 40. Okay. And Valdivia is beautiful. So so you said that that passage was 52 days, 30 of it beating into the wind. Were there other events that were memorable? Any storms? Any we did set the trisol once. Uh, we got becalmed for about a week because we we thought we were far enough south to start cutting in, mm. and we're not. Uh, and I believe it was after that we had our first. It was a, a very mild gale, it, yeah. but it was breezy enough that it was like this would be a good experience to try setting the trisol and see how it works because we never used it before. You'd gotten it used off, you know, <laughs> somewhere. Um, always good to set once (laughs) so we gave that a shot and it was beautiful it was the middle of the day and sunny and like you know very pleasant for a gale um so that was kind of entertaining ben threw his back out at one point Oof. so well that's a good uh way for you to learn i got my sail handling experience um that boat the mast was quite far forward so had a very small jib and as soon as you reef down if it's breezy and you're trying to go upwind it's really hard to get the boat balanced so we did a lot of sail handling and tweaking and trying to get the boat happy going to weather and it was very difficult to keep her powered up enough Uh, she also was very you know shallow keeled it was basically a football shaped underbody so did you have self not efficient uh, self-steering gear kind of (laughs) <laughs> yes uh, we had it we had a cape horn uh i guess the, we, we would call it brand wind yeah, another cape horns um going up wind was pretty fine that that was powerful enough that it would steer the boat pretty mm. effectively going downwind was another matter and how did you do shifts in terms of uh we tend when we're offshore to do kind of a rough three on three off uh-huh. um but a bit tweaked because i tend to be much better late at night and Anna's good at the morning mm-hmm. so often like we'll have dinner i'll stay up to like midnight or something and i'll take midnight three i do three to six and then i sleep for take kind of a long sleep in the morning so you threw your back out how did you do that varnishing or oiling. Oh my god! It wasn't that's anything. So unromantic. No, it was nothing. It was like I picked up a hatch sideways. <laughs> oh man! I picked up the lazarette hatch like crooked, and my back went. You never know what's gonna do it. And um, how long were you flat on your back? I mean, I was I was somewhat functional. Like I wasn't fully laid out, um, but I basically couldn't sail handle or grind a winch for about a week. Mm. Um, which was really annoying because I'd be on watch and I'd be like, hey, Anna, come mm. trim this jib. While you're in the middle of <laughs> While she was asleep. Only sleep time, yeah. Yeah. Because we were worried if it got, if I threw it out worse, then we'd like really, because as long as I could stand watch and sit up in the cockpit and, you know, steer a bit, like, okay, like we were fine. But if I was fully knocked out, it was going to start being a lot of work for Anna. Yeah. And we were way far from anywhere. 
Yeah. That's when you start feeling way far from anywhere is when you start to have some sort of medical issue or, yeah. I mean, even you set the EPIRB off out there and you're a week from someone maybe getting to you. I mean, you're out of range of helicopters. It's only, and there's hardly any ship traffic down there. So, yeah. Um, like you don't see, I don't think we saw a boat maybe the first week out of Panama and then we didn't see a boat till we got to Chile. Wow. So, yeah, it's pretty quiet out there. That's pretty great that there are still parts of the ocean that are like that. Yeah, barely even airplanes, too, because there's no, um, I mean, like South America to New Zealand's kind of the only route that would maybe do that, and there's not a lot of those planes going. All right, so let's keep going down the coast. So how long did you stay uh, in Chile? Uh, so we total, we spent about two years there. Oh, okay. Um, first, so we got to Valdivia that... I guess it was late summer in Chile. What month was it? The seasons are backwards, so it's very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we basically got to Valdivia. And, just yeah, okay. just we're trying so to remember March. what the weather was like and then flip it. Yeah, know. so March we got to Valdivia. Um, and we wound up staying. The yacht club in Valdivia is lovely. So we put the boat up there and lived aboard for, we spent eight months in Valdivia. Um, and we also got offered, part of why we stayed was um, some a British couple who had been sailors and wanted to buy a house in Chile were going back to see their grandkids and basically offered us and two other couples who were also on sailboats their estate, I think is the best way to say it, for the winter. Um, wow. So we had a house and an auxiliary house on like a 500-hectare farm on the river for the winter. <laughs> How great is that? Um, and we had to like basically feed the dogs. And the sail mail station. Oh, yeah, and their house oh, yeah. was the sail mail station. Oh, so we had to station. make sure the sail mail station didn't turn off. For people who don't know what sail mail is, explain. Uh, it's basically, I barely know what it is, but it's basically ham radio-based email. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have a modem. Uh, it's called a Pactor modem. I used to, I assume you guys didn't have a ham radio on board. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you connect to a, a land-based station where you then can very slowly download your email over the radio. And so they were the they so were they the were the station. sail mail station for that chunk of the world. Um, so that was like we basically had to feed the dog and the cat and make sure the sail mail station stayed on. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that's what cruising is all about: is meeting people and getting these opportunities. And yeah, and so it worked out great. I mean, we had a lovely house. Uh, our friends Bram and Vivian totally rebuilt their boat that winter because they could move off the boat and they had just had a baby, so they could work on the boat without you know make a whole mess without having to live in it. Um, we took off and did a motorcycle trip for six or so weeks, hmm. like six weeks. Um, so yeah, it was real nice and Valdivia is a great city and the yacht club is a really nice place to hang out. Um, so it was a nice place to stay for a while. Did a bunch of work on the boat. Well, now you're over two years into the trip. Is that right? Half, what are we time-wise? Probably a year and a half, but we were home for four months of that. So okay. like year-ish of sailing okay. probably at that point so you push off from valdivia down towards cape horn is that the destination so the plan is um not quite cape horn but basically beagle channel beagle channel about okay 50 miles north and um, you can sail through the channels so the cool thing with chile so from valdivia you have to go it's like 100 150 miles to portamont but once you're in portamont you've got 1,200-ish miles of fjords and canals and channels and sort of inland waterways where you only have to bounce off into the exposed ocean, I think, twice. Once right at the entrance to Strait of Magellan and one other spot a little further north. Hmm. So you basically have 1,200 miles of sailing down fjords with um, big, you know, seven, 8,000-foot mountains around you and glaciers as you get further south. Uh, you anchor every night. You don't sail at night. Um, it's slow. I mean, we spent six months doing it. So we were there from kind of late summer into the winter. We got to Port Williams. Port Williams is almost the southernmost town in the world. It's just north of Cape Horn. We got there in July. So that's kind of dead of winter. And yeah, it was lovely. Wow, there. you're doing this in, in winter? Well, it was six months. So. <laughs> Yeah, we started yeah, yeah. in the summer. We thought it would take three months, and it took six. Okay. And you had heat on the boat? We had a wood stove. A wood stove. And a dog. Okay. And where did you get wood? 
uh, we'd go collect you'd go on collect. shore, which was actually pretty Wait, you easy had a dog on the boat as and well. And a dog. And yeah. remind us the length of this boat? 28 feet. 28 feet. <laughs> it was a big dog. We had found a puppy it. on the beach in Valdivia. This, this little, like, she weighed a kilo. And we were like, oh, this dog doesn't look like it's going to get that big. We'll take it. She was abandoned. Um, and she turned into a 60-pound German Shepherd. Wow. So we had her on the boat for for all that. It's a good thing you were anchoring every night. What What's your tender? How are you getting her ashore? Uh, so we had a... Um, they don't make them anymore. Uh, they still make so full boats, which are made still. It was an old version of a full boat that didn't have a transom. It was like a double-ended full boat. Huh. So sort of this little like peapod-looking thing. And it was pretty cool, actually. And it could was... both of you and the dog fit in this? Yeah. Yeah, we could all three of us could get in there. Rode our right, had a little sailing rig. Um, and it, pa- it had flat packed, so you could lay it on the deck like a surfboard, basically. It folded totally flat. Oh, so that that's was cool great. on the small boat. Yeah, and it was yeah. light, easy. One of us could pick it up and things like that. That's perfect. Uh, we still have it, actually. We kept it to use on the new boat. We spent quite a bit of time once we made it through the channels. Uh, we were shoveling snow off the boat at that point, and wow kind of running out of food because you're extremely remote at that point before you hit Port Williams. We spent a bunch of time in Port Williams, um, left the boat there for a while, went home again, ended up getting a trip to Antarctica on a charter boat that was looking for some extra hands, a Polish boat. So that was very entertaining. So we stuck around a couple extra months in order to wait for that trip, which very was cool. around, I think, December. Midsummer. Was that a Polish boat that just happened to be down there, or were they based down there and doing trips to Antarctica? They were. They would base down there for the for the season, okay. basically, to yeah. do charter trips. And I think this was, I think it was the first trip of the season. Yeah, first trip of the year. And we actually got a friend of ours, from you know, family friend from when Ben was growing up, to come down and help sort of crew slash passenger the boat. So um, nice. that was a that was a fantastic trip the stereotype of polish drinking is <laughs> there were some rules about when you were and were not allowed to drink alcohol and that was for a reason um but that was that was massively entertaining um and we we really loved our time in chile it was an incredible um you know just physical place to be in the world it's really gorgeous uh, the people that you meet on sailboats down there are incredibly interesting and accomplished sailors. There was some emotion of the best part of the trip has been achieved at mm, that point. That was kind of the pinnacle. Yeah. And you could feel it happening at that time. And it was sort of an interesting experience. So it was very kind of bittersweet to leave leave Chile. Um, and so we... We sailed to the Falkland Islands, and we're actually not really planning to stop, um, but hit some nasty weather right as we were coming up to the islands, and so spent a very unpleasant six or eight hours um, beating up into this harbor. Yeah, that part of the world is known for not so nice weather. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly like the weather that we had going through the channels was at times very miserable. But you're protected from the big ocean. Uh, We averaged, I think, one day a week of sailing. And you're going five to ten miles Mm. each of those days. Um, But it's, it's extraordinarily pleasant. And you're in these cozy tight little secure anchorages every night um and you nestle yourself in with shorelines to trees and whatnot so it's it's very um comforting the falklands on the other hand are not comforting at all it is a a desolate wind-blown sort of perpetually drizzling but also very dry place we had some negative experiences in the falkland we ended up spending six weeks there the dog couldn't go ashore because we hadn't gotten the proper vaccinations we almost got arrested because we went to shore we when we were trying to escape from the bad weather we went into a harbor that was not a port of entry oh and we went ashore because the dog had just endured a really unpleasant passage and so we went ashore and And somebody found out and so by the time we got to stanley 
we were, you know, wanted criminals. <laughs> and they had, somebody had seen you ashore and was worried about this. And I don't know who narked on us, <laughs> but someone did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, they definitely like came to our boat and searched our boat and took our camera. And there were pictures of our dog chasing penguins, which is never a good scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I now have a letter from the Falklands Island government saying I'm absolved of all wrongdoing. And oh. I can leave. Well, that's good. But that took a little while. You made amends. You could um, leave. They were going to keep you there until... I don't know what they're... Uh, yeah. I think, you know, honestly, there was like a new guy at the police station. I think we were a training case. Yeah. He wanted to show who was They needed who was to train charge. the new guy and how they were... They were all very nice the whole time. I think just it was a training event. For all and, yeah, the miles And the dog couldn't covered. go ashore. So the dog spent six weeks on the boat. Oh. And we, our wind vane broke was why we were there. So we were ordering a new wind vane oh, to get okay. delivered. It was the most expensive place I've ever been in my life. <laughs> Internet costs 15 cents a minute. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Where to from the Falklands? Uh, so Falklands, we left there and went to Uruguay, mm-hmm. uh, which was lovely because that's where you make the transition to like semi-tropical. Mm. So all of a sudden you hit, I mean, the, the sail there is awful. Um, it's sort of like, it's kind of equivalent to the Gulf Stream off the East Coast of the U.S. in terms uh-huh. of weather where you've got basically big cold fronts coming off land and hitting warm currents with significant currents flowing. So it's a really nasty part of the world. I mean, we left the Falklands under trisol because that was like the good weather. It was only blowing like 30 and it was behind <laughs> us. And actually the worst was like the day before we left, we got an email from our friends, this other cruising couple who had been sailing for 40 years and all over they'd done new zealand to chile and like all the places and we get this email that just says yeah hey we made it to uruguay and it was the worst passage we ever had we put the rig in the water and it was awful and we're like cool we're leaving tomorrow <laughs> so, <laughs> so you leave, hit, under we leave under a trisol like basically ran on the backside of a gale wow. and then we hit i think two more gales on the way because it's like a four-day weather pattern four or five-day weather pattern it's a 12-day passage um, but once you get close to Uruguay, the water temp goes up about 20 degrees, the water's 70 degrees, the air's warm, and everything gets lovely. Mm-hmm. And we sailed into, uh, I think, Periopolis in Uruguay and set the dog loose on the beach. And she ran forever. <laughs> and you didn't get arrested. And it was warm, <laughs> and everyone was friendly, and it was great. <laughs> Um, and then we left the boat in Uruguay for about eight months and came home. Okay. So. And then I know you went farther north. So worked again for a little bit? Yeah. So we came home. I worked with my dad surveying. Anna actually got hired back at her old company nice. for were... the second time around. Wow. True to their word. Um, twice. For yeah, seven, eight months, um, and I was working with my dad's survey, and so I just came home, made some money, and then we went back, and then we went nonstop from Uruguay to Antigua, which was 55 days, I believe. Wow. Was uh, that your longest passage? That was our longest, yeah. And that was kind of cool, because at that point, we were we were just dialed on the boat. I mean, yeah. in, in 55 days, the only breakage we had was one wind vane line broke. And we had to replace it from Chafe. Um, so, like, the boat was dialed. We were sorted. It was actually a really easy passage. Um, a little hot, a little slow. Yeah. Once we hit the trades up to Antigua, it was just cruising downwind, 100, 120 miles a day. Got to Antigua, spent 10 days there because we weren't really into the Caribbean, and up to Beaufort, North Carolina. Nice. And then up the East Coast. Up to Maine? Where did you guys uh, end? We stopped in Essex, Mass, where I grew up. Okay. And sold the boat there. Anna, what what was most unexpected about cruising for you? I mean, oh, I had I had great dreams of you know finding myself and improving myself mm-hmm. and becoming a new and improved version of myself. And one of the most like, enlightening but also depressing realizations was that it's it's not so much about becoming a new person or you know. Getting rid of the baggage of normal life, like you are exactly who you are, and that just becomes that much more apparent, and you're forced so much more to just deal with that. 
yeah. um, you know, the, the inner demons and baggage and particularities of your personality don't change. Yeah. Um, I guess the refreshing flip side of that is realizing and learning to trust how capable you really are. You know, it yeah. is, it is a situation of incredible self-sufficiency. I mean, I had the, the, the pleasure and the ease of doing it with somebody else who was probably more competent than I in, in most ways. Um, but that's one of the most satisfying things about cruising is, is the self-sufficiency and the amount of just the, the satisfaction of rowing to shore and finding a hose and filling a jerry jug and rowing back and getting it up into the boat and filling your water tank and being able to survive on, you know, a half a gallon a day per person on passage, because that's what you have. I love that. That's, that's really interesting. Cause so many people do go off, say, okay, this is going to be my time away. I'm going to figure it all out. It doesn't answer questions. It's extraordinarily tedious and mon mundane and every day. It's just a kind of every day that we have grown so used to outsourcing and simplifying and streamlining and, and it forces you to be in the moment in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always great, but yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's real. It's, it's real. Very real. And the great parts are excellent. Yes. And the crappy parts are really shitty. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you, how did you guys both end up, you obviously found a good way that you worked together on the boat. How would you describe that dynamic? Very nonverbal. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to make you verbalize it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially on long passages where time takes on another form because it's not night and day anymore. It's are you on watch or off watch? And that's such a different rhythm and length of time and objective that you have to take care of during your waking hours or sleeping hours. It You get into patterns and rhythms and you you figure out what the other person is good at, what they need, and how to make those skills compatible in terms of making your day as efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I always felt a strong sense of the need to keep a reserve of mental and physical energy for the oh shit. You know, you, you don't know, even if you're becalmed in the middle of the ocean, at what point something is going to happen that you need to deal with and you probably both need to deal with. So even in the most depths of boredom, there's always that sort of underlying urgency that it, it kind of gives you a reason to learn how to, to work with another person mm -hmm. in the sense of like, you know, you are very much aware of trusting that person with your life at all times. Anything to add, Ben? I mean, I think in some ways it also changed a lot because Anna started the trip not knowing how to sail basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few months in, as she got better at it, that changed things a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's always a little different for me because in a lot of ways it's a life I'm used to and it wasn't a new thing. Right. Going off and doing that trip. So talk to me about the end of it, selling the boat and readjusting. <laughs> so we got to Essex, which is where I grew up, sailed into, into Essex. Or actually, we got towed in. It was one of two times on the whole trip we got a tow. Because we got to the end of the estuary, and my mom came out in a powerboat with a friend, and we were like, hook us up, we're going in. <laughs> <laughs> we're not sitting here, it's calm. And we actually had the boat sold by the time we got there, pretty much, through a friend of a friend. Wow. Guy was looking for a little boat to do some cruising, and so, we were like, hey, we got you. And um, So it's a very abrupt transition. So we, yeah, got there. We were in Essex for a few weeks, unloaded all our stuff into my mom's house, Maybe a month later or so, month, six weeks later, we hopped in a car that we were getting from my mom and drove back out here. Was it difficult swallowing the anchor? Or? It's a very different life for sure. I mean, yeah. you get back here. We were, I mean, we we're still living on a boat actually in Sausalito, so that was kind of nice. Yeah. Um, it's very noisy. 
being back in the city. You don't notice it till you go offshore for a long time, and then you come to especially the city, and you're like, wow, it's so noisy here. You know, we kind of it was a fairly easy transition in some ways, in that I was starting surveying. Anna didn't start working for a bit. We were living on a boat. So we kind of eased back into it. But yeah. Neither of us really had great aspirations for continuing the trip at that point. It wasn't a, a surprise or a choice by necessity. So let, let it, me stop you. Yeah. How did you know? Like, how did you know that this was the stopping point? We wanted a new boat. You wanted a new boat. A bigger boat or just a... Just a boat that sailed better. Okay. <laughs> um, we actually, one of the things we did in Valdivia was we pulled the boat out of the water and we built some more keel <laughs> in an attempt to be able to go upwind more effectively. We also, while we were in Port of Williams, so the, the keel we did in Valdivia, we spent six months basically out of touch with reality and internet and civilization in the channels, arrived in Port Williams, and within, I, I want to say, like a couple of days of being on the internet, Ben was on Craigslist looking at boats. <laughs> so it wasn't so much the, the end of the cruising as the next phase, which actually yeah. takes us very well into the next topic I want to hit, is the boat you're currently working on. Yeah. So tell us about this boat. Where, where, what is she? Where'd you find her? What are you doing to her? Uh, so as Anna said, while we were in Port of Williams, I was on the internet on Craigslist and it showed up for sale. Uh-huh. It's uh, uh, built in 1968. Uh, Alan Gurney designed, uh, built by Rail Houseman, aluminum hulled, 33 footer. Um, so it's kind of, it was a small run. They only built six of them, but it's, the easiest way to think of it, it's kind of like a small Cal 40. Okay. Um, kind of that late CCA era uh-huh. type boat, fin keel, um, moderate underbody. Um, and so, yeah, I saw it on Craigslist and basically called my dad and was like, hey, go look at this. And if it looks all right, buy it. Um, <laughs> so we bought it and we were still 6,000 miles from home or whatever. Um, <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, you know boats. You have a, a background in surveying not only you, but your father. So you saw this online and you just knew, okay, if that it is looked what it very close to what we were looking for. I mean, we yeah. wanted, we wanted an aluminum boat cause we like high latitudes. So metal yeah. is great. And I don't like dealing with steel cause rust. Yeah. It's just dirty. Um, so we knew we wanted aluminum. We knew we wanted in that kind of mid thirties size and we knew we wanted fin keel. Okay. Um, so we got that. None of it makes any sense. I mean, we paid to put it up on the hard for a bunch of years and all that stuff. And we've now completely gutted it because we basically bought it for the hull. Right. We bought the boat. As of now, it's completely gutted. Decks are cut off. No interior, bare aluminum hull. Currently getting it stripped down. So we basically have a hull to start from for our new boat. Yeah. Build it back up from the ground up just how you want. So we're basically doing a bare hull build, except we had to tear the boat apart first. (laughs) Um, Well... Gives you some idea of what was there and what you could do differently. And at that point, we were seriously considering doing a scratch build. So uh-huh. it was kind of like, oh, we can get this hull that it's a round build aluminum hull. And we can't, you can't build that without a massive shipyard Yeah, because you can't form the plates. So it was an opportunity to get a round build metal hull. And when you say round build, build it's uh, just for, for people listening, it's instead of the hard chine that you often see where there are kind of seams on the boat, it actually, if you painted it, you wouldn't necessarily know it was a metal boat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you painted this boat, it looks like a glass boat. Yeah. Um, but to form the aluminum sheets to that shape, you need huge presses and stuff. It's not and, something a home builder can do. And it was built, you said, in... Uh, Holland in Holland yeah, yeah by Royal Houseman who nowadays they still exist um and but they build mega yachts I yeah. mean they're small boats are 150 feet and right. millions of millions of dollars um but it was pretty cool actually I emailed them and I was like hey I got this boat do you know anything about it and they're like oh yeah and they like sent me some old shop drawings and like pictures they had and stuff of the uh, boat how fantastic. Um, and have been super helpful I've emailed them a few times to be like what alloy did you use or whatever for the construction? They get right back like, oh, yeah, it's built out of this alloy and cool that you're doing it. So they've that been really great. helpful. That is great. 
that they still have the records or there might be somebody around. I mean, I contacted the builder of our boat and they're like, oh, sorry, there's nobody around who built those. That <laughs> <laughs> was built in the 80s. <laughs> Can't help you. But so that's very nice to have. So um, what are you working on right now with it? What are the plans? Um, so this morning I was grinding paint because yeah. right now we're grinding because we want to go to barrel. of being a boat builder, a yeah. boat owner. Um, we want to go to barrel aluminum topside, so we're taking all the topside paint off. We're stripping all the paint off the interior because it's just old and want a clean start. Yeah. And then um, on the bottom we'll take all the bottom paint off, but leave the barrier coat because it's in good shape. Um, but yeah, so another few days of paint stripping on the outside, another few days of paint stripping on the inside. Um, and then we can actually start building. Nice. And where are your dreams of, of going? One of the current itineraries that we've been tossing around is getting the boat on a truck to Duluth. Okay, not the first place that comes to mind. Sailing through the Great Lakes. Uh, and going out the St. Lawrence Seaway. Oh, fun. And spending some time in Nova Scotia and New England. Um, you know, for me, sailing the coast of Maine would be really special. Um, yeah. It's an amazing cruising grounds that is very near and dear to my heart, but I've never seen it from that perspective. Yeah. Uh, so that would be pretty cool. It also, part of this plan is a very gentle shakedown. So rather than Right. leaving immediately and going straight offshore for 40 days. Um, given that we're building from scratch, no plans, trying to fit a 50-foot boat in a 33-foot hull, um, <laughs> we're bound to make some mistakes. <laughs> when you say, what do you mean design. when you say that, fitting a 50-foot boat in a Oh, having, you know, a, a lovely big, you know, double berth that's separate from the main salon area that's also good at sea having an actual head this time, unlike last time where we just, you know, stuck our bums over the side and, you know, had a little porta potty type thing for in harbor, but this time we want a proper composting toilet, we want a proper diesel heater, we want like a nice galley that actually yeah. has actually the galley on Inga was quite decent for so. such a little boat. Aside from the stove. Um <laughs> <laughs> we want a nice watertight bulkhead for the four peak that will be uninsulated, you know, sort of a collision bulkhead and uh -huh. cold storage area. We want integral water tanks, maybe an electric motor. We'll see on this one. Haven't quite figured that out. Very um, cool. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of design elements that we're going to try and stuff in there. So we're, we're going to have to redo it when we get to New England. So the idea is rough it in. Get the decks on solid, get the rig working, make it a, a you know, seaworthy boat, do a trip on beanbag chairs, and then do the proper good well, word work. I, know, I like there. that about your ethos. And we were talking about this before we started recording, that when you took off on your trip on um, Inga, mm -hmm. you were still building the companionway as you were going out the Golden Gate. Yeah. You just have to go at some point because you're never done. Exactly. Well, I'm excited to follow the progress. Is there anything we haven't talked about, about the trip, about the boat, about anything that you guys want to mention? There's a lot of so many things. Yeah. So many things. So many I mean, things. We'll have to I, do I another. Think, I think one thing that m might be fun for people listening is um, going through the channels, the experience of running shorelines hmm. is something that you don't necessarily get experience in many places. Yeah. Um, so... A lot of, especially as you get further south, the caletas, the little coves, are very deep and very small. And they're great because they're excellent protection. The wind is really gnarly down there. The closest you can get to 360 protection with very little fetch is mm. huge. It means that securing your boat in these little spaces is a little bit of a spider web kind of adventure. And particularly, a lot of people in the channels with a motor would do sort of a modified medmore kind of thing. So you like come in, you drop an anchor, you back down, you row to stern lines ashore and attach to trees. And that sort of triangulates yourself and you can keep directional control and have a couple different solid points aside from your anchor. Without an engine, we had to get pretty creative. Yeah. 
talk what so what what is the process um the one of the procedures that worked pretty well is so we had a whole bunch of shorelines that were all pre-made with you know spliced eyes at the end and Mm -hmm. of you know pretty long lengths and we had them in a couple like duffel bags so you wrap wrap it around a tree through its own eye and then back to the boat the shoreline setup was we had i think there were 150 foot a few hundred foot long lines with eyes spliced on the end and then we had webbing strops to throw around trees and then we had beaners you know just rock climbing carabiners to clip everything together so it was faster we didn't have to tie any knots you could just throw a strop and clip it we often had no anchor down at all the dinghy would be pre put together so rather than being folded flat it would be on deck already on the foredeck i would shove that over the side jump in the dinghy with a bag of shorelines ben would loaf around tacking back and forth sort of at the mouth of the cove i would run a shoreline the entire way across the mouth of little cove from tree to tree so i would row in with the line climb up on shore fasten it to a tree get back down to the dinghy row over to the other side find another tree of hopefully substantial width get that secured and so there's basically a a line completely across the mouth of the cove and then ben would just sail up to it and you could you didn't have to be super precise about where you hit it because there was always a line that you could grab onto and then we would get that affixed generally to two bow cleats and then row two additional stern lines ashore. So you'd have four shorelines spider webbing yourself Very into cool. this little harbor. Yeah. And you'd sort of do the reverse for leaving. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it was. I think we had it down to 45 minutes to an hour to get in or out of an anchorage. And by the end... By the end of the trip... Like by the end of the out. trip, you're also doing this in the cold. Yeah. I mean, it was snowing sometimes and, you know, mittens and lots yeah. of jackets oh. kind of weather and no oh. daylight. Yeah. The other problem, I mean, when you're in southern Chile in the middle of winter, the sun's only up a few hours a day, but you're also anchored in these little calados with like six, 7,000 foot mountains all around you. So you never see the sun. Um, oh. So no solar. So we had no electricity Ooh. for about the last six weeks wow um, but we had like a one nice little kerosene lantern but yeah because you just the sun never breaks the horizon basically because you're tucked in up against these these big big tall hills and mountains and stuff when you're anchored yeah ah oh, what an experience it's wow. a it's a special area another neat thing down there there's manned lighthouses down there and you actually talk to them on the radio as you go past the chilean government like knowing who's moving around down there but at one point, actually, because we had no electricity, we were in some little harbor tucked in for the night, and a Chilean Coast Guard Zodiac came up to us, came alongside, which was weird. We're like, whoa, there's somebody here. And they were like, hey, are you guys all right? You know, we tried hailing you on radio and couldn't get hold of you. We're like, oh, yeah, we have <laughs> we no electricity, have <laughs> so we have no radio, but we're, we're good. We're doing fine. Um, they're like, oh, well, go to the – there's a manned lighthouse another uh, 10, 20 miles away. If you go in there, they can charge your batteries. They're off-grid, but they have wind and solar and everything. They're like, oh, cool. So we wound up going into that lighthouse, and um, the it was a couple there, and their little daughter, their little, like, two-year-old daughter, and they were there for, I think, a year is the posting or something like that, that they're out there just on their own, manning this lighthouse and listening to the radio, basically. So, but we ended up hanging out with them for a few days because they were like a little starved for company too. You know, we've been in the channels for six months. So we hung out there, got hot showers, which was cool. Some more food because we were down to rice. But the other thing is we had our dog with us at that point and we were planning to go to Port Williams. We were planning to fly home for a month or two from Port Williams. Just, you know, it was the middle of winter, go see family. And they're like, oh, what are you going to do with the dog? And we're like, oh, we're not really sure. Maybe someone can take her. We'll take her home. They're like, oh, we'll take her. So our dog spent, you know, two months at this Chilean lighthouse, like running around. And then when we got back, they just put her on a fishing boat and like sent her to Port Williams for us, which was pretty great. And she got super good with little kids there and came back all fluffy because she had been kind of living like kind of in their front hall where it wasn't super heated and it was all snowy and stuff. Um, So that was pretty fun. Well, guys, this has been great. It's been such a pleasure hearing your story, hearing more of your story. And look forward to following 
your next adventure. It's it's fun to relive it a little bit, and it definitely, you know, a little breath on the spark for the next trip. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview. As always, you can leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. And now, if you listen via Spotify, you can leave comments there too. If you want to reach out to me directly with thoughts or comments, find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or email me at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. And until next time, smooth sailing.